Good afternoon again, members and guests, and a warm welcome to those of you joining us online at canadianclub.org. Welcome to the first event of 2024. My name is Glenn Parkinson. I'm the president of Canadian Club Toronto and your host this afternoon. Our annual Outlook event, one of our favorite traditions here at Canadian Club, and we thank the National Post and the Financial Post for their steadfast support in putting this on year after year. It's so much fun and we all do um, so much uh, reflecting and laughing and, and thinking together, so thank you for, to Financial Post and the National Post. I'd also like to thank our season sponsor, Canadian Bankers Association, our official airline partner, Air Canada, and our event sponsors today, Scotiabank and EY. To all our sponsors, we wouldn't be able to do this without you, so thank you very much for your generosity. Now, our entire season is carbon neutral, thanks to our partnership with Canada's Forest Trust. CFT plants and maintains a smart forest on our behalf, um, which not only offsets the carbon impact of our entire season, but creates a legacy for the future. CFT is highly innovative, really great to work with. Please check them out and learn more at uh, canadasforesttrust.ca. Now, we spoke about resolutions a little bit earlier, um, but did you know that January is also Mentorship Month? And our friends at Futurepreneur, and for those who don't know, Futurepreneur is a national nonprofit that um, provides resources, mentorship, and financing to young entrepreneurs across the country. Um, so Futurepreneur is looking for volunteer mentors. Um, and you know, to some degree, all of us have some expertise we could lend. And just a bit of your time can make a really big difference to a young founder. So I encourage you to give it some thought and uh, go to futurepreneur.ca if you're interested or inclined at all to be a mentor. Uh, for the upcoming year. I think it could be really rewarding, and if you've got a resolution on giving back, this could be your chance. Okay. Yes, thank you. Good one. And speaking of young leaders, we've got two tables of young leaders here as our guests of the club. We've got a table from Toronto Metropolitan University and from the CEE Center for Young Black Professionals. So welcome, both of you. Now, just before I introduce our panelists, let me invite you to get your questions ready. We always like to have interactive participation from the audience. Are you wondering about their views on economic growth or interest rates, um, geopolitical events and the impact that those might have at home, maybe the upcoming US election and what that might mean for Canada? Um, whatever the question, there are question cards in the center of your table, so please take a look, make sure you've got one, start filling in your question and hold it up and we'll bring them to the front of the room. And for those of you on canadianclub.org joining us remotely, you'll see a button called Submit a Question on the right-hand side of your screen. If you use that, we'll similarly collect it and print it out here and bring it up to the front. And now I'm pleased to introduce our panelists. Joining us today, Sabrina Maddow, columnist, National Post. As a columnist, Sabrina is known for her bold opinions on topics from politics, pop culture, economics, and equality. Sabrina is also a frequent on-air contributor and has appeared on CP24, Breakfast Television, ET Canada, TVO's The Agenda, CityLine, and many other broadcasts. She's the recipient of multiple National Magazine Awards and Canadian Online Publishing Awards. Jean-Francois Perrault, Senior Vice President and Chief Economist, Scotiabank. 
Since 2015, Jean-Francois Perrault has been the Senior Vice President and Chief Economist, leading a team of economists to support Scotiabank's domestic and international business lines. Prior to joining Scotiabank, JF held prominent roles in the federal government, the Bank of Canada, the IMF, and the World Bank. Amanda Lang, host of Taking Stock on Bell Media. Amanda is an award-winning business journalist who's covered North America for 25 years. She hosts Taking Stock and was previously the host of Bloomberg Markets. Prior to that, she was CBC's senior business correspondent. She's a senior fellow at the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy and chairs the board of Covenant House Toronto, the largest agency in Canada serving homeless and at-risk youth. Dennis Mitchell, Chief Executive Officer and Chief Investment Officer, Starlight Capital. Dennis has served as CEO and CIO at Starlight since March 2018. With more than 20 years of investment industry experience, he's held executive positions with Sprott Asset Management, Century Investments, and he's the co-founder and director of the Black Opportunity Fund. He also received the Afro Global Television Excellence Award for Enterprise in 2020, and the Black Business and Professionals Association's Harry Jerome President's Award in 2021. And now our moderator, Joe Hood, managing editor of Financial Post. Joe has nearly 20 years of journalism experience, including as a foreign editor and front page editor of the National Post. At the Financial Post, his areas of expertise include retail financial services, capital markets, and investing. We are certainly in good hands, Joe, so I turn the podium over to you and our panelists. Let's get underway. All right, good afternoon, everyone. Uh, we have a lot of themes to get to here for 2024. We'll be talking about the economy, housing, and interest rates. We'll be talking about Canadian politics, US politics, a certain US politician, and more broadly, geopolitics. Uh, but first, I wanted to give our panelists a quick couple minutes to each sum up from their perspectives the biggest thing they learned in 2023 and how it sets the stage for the year ahead. I'm gonna start down at the far end with Sabrina. I think in 2023, it was a big learning year um, on the geopolitical front and in terms of international relations for Canada, whether it was um, Russia's invasion of Ukraine or the Hamas attack on Israel on October 7th. I think what we learned is we can't afford to sit back and take for granted both our role in the world, um, but also national security and cultural consensus in Canada for a long time many Canadians have operated under the notion that bad things can't happen here um, and that we can take for granted our place in the world and the role we can play in it as a leader. I think it's become very clear that perhaps we've sat back on our laurels for too long and there are a lot of uh, risks coming up both more broadly around the world but also within our borders um, over the next few years and it's something we have to take much more seriously and do a lot of uh, hard thinking on. Thanks, Sabrina. Uh, JF. 
Yeah, a couple of things. I mean, if we go back to, and I forget exactly what I said last year here, but um, if we go back to what the general thinking was this time last year, um, from a growth perspective, it was the point of view is going to be tough. Folks are thinking about a recession in the U.S., we're thinking about a recession in Canada. You know, there are divergence of views as to whether recessions would occur, but that was the kind of the mainline view. You know, if we look at 2023 growth outcomes in Canada and the U.S. and compare those to what the consensus was this time last year, well, growth in Canada is twice as strong as what we thought was going to happen. And growth in the U.S. is five times as strong as what we thought was going to happen. So there's a resilience to both economies and to the global economy in general that I think was completely underappreciated this time last year and the year before that, and even I think still is the case because that's got implications for next year, which um, are really, that's kind of the big eye opener, right? So the fact that rates are 5%, Canada is in fact a reflection of the fact that the economy has been darn strong and that we need rates of 5% to get things done. So that's one big learning. The other is, um, is you know, a more uniquely Canadian thing. You know, our productivity performance over the last year, which has been a challenge for a number of years, has just sucked. It's been horrible. And it's a big, big problem. And the scale of that problem, I think, gets bigger and bigger. And I think, hopefully, that realization influences how policymakers think about the way forward, given the fact that we're going to have an election in a little while. That could be really meaningful if we get people that are able to change how we um, do on that front. In terms of that resilience in the economy, is there something that we're missing or that we're not picking up on that, that was going on? Um, well, you know, part of it is immigration, right? We had a million more people, so that's, those are new buyers of things. Um, part of that is the labor market was still extremely strong. But I think part of it is kind of the social phenomenon where we just tend to be uh, negative about stuff. Right? You want to, um, you know, rates are higher, people don't like that, so you got to be interpreting from that that things are going to be rough for a lot of people. Maybe not you, but everybody else. And that, I think, permeates um, kind of mainline thinking in, in economics and other fields as well. And so I think there's a little bit of, there's kind of excess pessimism out there as to how, how resilient we really are normally, and, and that came out last year. Great, Amanda. Which hits on hits on one of the big things that I um, think was was observable last year, which was a disconnect between sentiment and reality, and it seemed to widen as the year went on. Um, and there, you know, we can speculate on why that is, but people feel worse than they should, um, if I can put it that way. But the sentiment data just didn't match up with the economic data, and there's something interesting in that. Uh, is it psychology? Is it because um, there were a lot of layoffs in media and media write the headlines? I don't know. Um, but it's not as bad as you would have thought, and certainly it's not as bad as people felt. And the problem with that is that is self-fulfilling, as we know. Um, I would say, the, to me, the big theme of 2023 was it's not different this time. Um, that for everybody that had, and by everybody I mean, you know, Midwestern U.S. banks um, and central bankers uh, that thought low for long would last forever, uh, that cycles were different, that uh, we wouldn't revert to means. I think we all learned that that's not the case, uh, never has been, never will be, and we've all had a period of adjustment. So here we are, and I think we're still adjusting into 2024. Dennis? Um. <clears throat> For me, I, I feel like 2023 was the year where people who were complacent were woken up, right? So if you were in the financial markets, um, you know, at the start of last year, we had challenges in the regional banking market in the United States uh, that bled over to Europe, right? So a lot of risks that uh, I think people had taken for granted were hammered home and brought home again. Uh, a lot of countries and regions were complacent with their national security, and we, we've seen the fallout from that. All of a sudden, Finland and Sweden think it's a good idea to be in NATO, uh, right? 
so I just think there was a lot of complacency and a lot of people in countries and regions that were complacent, were, you know, the risks in the economy, the risks geopolitically were hammered home for a lot of people in a lot of countries last year. Um, so yeah, that was the, the big learning, I guess, for myself. Okay. Uh, JF, you said there's a bit of a disconnect there between uh, the view of the economy and what's really going on, that it might be a little bit more resilient. But as we go into 2024, one of the things everyone's talking about is recession. There's going to be a recession. So we've heard about soft landings, hard landings, uh, technical recession, jobful recession, good old-fashioned 90s-style recession. What, what's it going to be? <laughs> um, listen, we, I mean, like the economy is slowing. There's no question about it. We're feeling it. We're seeing it. That, that, that's not an issue. Um, and, you know, we had a, a, a decline in economic activity in the third quarter, so negative. We might have a negative in the fourth quarter. Um, so, you know, we might have a, what we call a technical recession, which is two quarters of decline. But those are, you know, they're largely due to kind of these one-off effects of port strikes or wildfires or big public sector strike in Quebec. They're not representative of kind of a widespread slowdown in economic activity where there's a lot of pain being felt by a lot of individuals and a lot of businesses. So our view is that, you know, that kind of stall in growth lasts for probably a quarter or two more. Um, you know, maybe some people call that a recession. We're just thinking we've stalled for a little while, and that's a, that's a good outcome because that's been intended for a long time. Um, you know, in terms of kind of these really nasty scenarios, we, I mean, you know, again, the resilience on the consumer household side is real. Like, that's like almost two-thirds of GDP, right? If households are hanging in there, and it looks like they are, um, you know, that gives you a lot of comfort about how bad things won't get, right? Because you do need to see that big adjustment on the part of households. So we're reasonably optimistic that we avoid a recession in kind of the traditional sense of the word. Um, and, you know, part of that is, of course, that rates get cut at some point in the year and that bridges you to a better period of time. If those rate cuts are off the table, it's a different story, but, you know, we're we're looking at things and, and feel pretty comfortable. I mean, the reality has been, I mean, look, look, you know, so you go into, and just give me 10 seconds, 30 seconds on this. Um, you know, you go into the Christmas period where the expectation was survey after survey, Christmas sales are gonna be horrible. Households are gonna suffer. Um, you know, if anything, the tracking for Christmas sales looks like it was not necessarily fantastic, but it was better than people expected. You look at retail sales in Canada in the fourth quarter, they're tracking way higher than we thought. Car sales in November, December picked up to the highest levels in like three, four years. That resilience is still at play. And as long as we see evidence of that, it makes it very difficult to argue that you're going to have a, a rough landing in Canada. Okay. Dennis, uh, what do you think about that? And do you think markets are pricing in the potential for a recession? Oh, definitely not. Um, I mean, if you look at multiples that, uh, whether the TSX or the S&P 500 are trading at, uh, that's certainly not recession multiples. Um, you know, this is, the, this is outlook season, right? So I had two this morning before this panel, uh, and I've probably got two more this afternoon when I get back. But uh, I, haven't, I, I haven't heard anyone talk about the fact that recessions are, or, or a recession is priced in either in the Canadian economy or the U.S. economy. Now, the other thing I would point out, and, and I hate the sort of false intellectual intellectualism around being pessimistic, so I'm, I'm certainly not being pessimistic for pessimism's sake, but I do think there is a concern about sort of the waves of refinancing in the mortgage market that are going to hit the Canadian economy. 92% um, of mortgages in the U.S. are below 6%, 60% are below 
50% or below 4, and so on and so forth. So they're less interest rate sensitive south of the border. But I do think there is a concern about the waves of mortgage refinancing we're going to see in both fixed rate and variable rate. Uh, and I mean, Tiff Macklem himself brought it up when he testified, well, testified when he spoke to Parliament. So it's front and center in front of mind for him as well. And I do think that will eventually put downward pressure on uh, household spending and as a result, um, GDP growth. Um, but no, I, I think markets right now are pricing in a healthy number of rate cuts. I think uh, multiples are near long-term averages, if not higher. And I think right now, earnings growth expectations in the U.S. are around 11 or 12 percent. So none of that would say that uh, we're expecting a recession or that it's priced into markets, not at all. Amanda, you talk to people on both sides of the border. Do you see any difference like in the outlook in the U.S. versus Canada? Well, there's certainly a difference in the strength of the economy um, that's been observable. The upside surprise there, uh, just, just stronger than our upside surprise. Um, our anemic growth, which is what we're getting, even when we're getting growth, um, still surprising us. But uh, what I would say is uh, two observations. One is when the S&P uh, is forecasting profit growth of 11%, the underlying assumption is economic growth of 5%. So the market is disconnected from the economy as well, but not in the same way we are and the other way. The market is overshooting um, on the upside. So do, uh, do with that what you will. Is the market right and the economy will be that strong or is the market due to, uh, to correct? Stocks are overvalued is the analysis that I see from many people. The other thing I would, um, I'd, I'd be interested to probe JF a little bit more on is we have seen this surprising holiday spending and we've seen this resilient consumer. And for a long time, we talked about the pent up savings of pandemic. Um, okay, I, my concern is when we pair up this spending with the, uh, the debt data uh, is that what we're seeing is this relentless desire on our part to consume uh, even in the face of a deteriorating household um, picture. So we do see debt levels high, stress about debt at record levels. Uh, and of course, as rates come up with um, refinancing is one part of the picture. But for a lot of people, these the people that are most vulnerable to debt, of course, it's, it's fixed. It's, uh, it's credit card debt. Uh, and they're extremely vulnerable. And I'm worried that they were out buying Lululemon and Crocs, which are two of the companies that said Christmas was great, um, even though they really shouldn't have. Uh, you know, you can get by for another year in last year's Lululemon. Okay, so if we move on to that refinancing question, uh, there's been a lot of talk about a mortgage cliff, the renewal cliff. Do we think that's real? Is that, is that coming up fast? I mean, it's real, it's in the data, right? It's you just, the, the banks have talked about it. They know exactly what it is and where it is. Um, I think it's 30% of outstanding mortgages reset in 25, 26 because they, we all went and bought houses in 2021. Um, so the math is. It, I mean, it's a lot. There's no question it's a lot, right? Um, and I would, I would observe, and, and I, again, I don't want to sound like I'm too optimistic because I get that comment all the time. Um, the Bank Canada published a study on renewals I think a week before Christmas, a couple weeks before Christmas, where they basically look at a loan by loan basis, which loans are renewing when, and what kind of stress that's gonna pose on household spending. And their conclusion is it's like, it's not a big deal. Like it's, there's nothing kind of out of the ordinary in terms of what's, of what's going to come. So there's that. Um, the other dimension is when we look at it from our perspective, so the bank, my bank's perspective. So we have, um, we have uh, uh, variable rate mortgages that are offered and our clients have, which many, many have. 
which see payments reset right away when rates change, right? So um, that gives you a sense of, so when folks actually do reset their payments, how have the people whose payments reset been impacted? Um, for those people, for the, and again, these are thousands and thousands and thousands of people, our customers, um, two-thirds of those very boring mortgage customers who are seeing their payments go up still have more deposits with us than they did before the pandemic. That's true on the fixed rate side as well. So, you know, it's easy to overplay how worrisome this kind of renewal wave will be. Um, but to do so, you've got to underplay some of the financial strength that remains in a lot of Canadians' um, pocketbooks, bank accounts, assets. Now, again, we're focused on the negative, and it's really easy to, you know, people are going to go from 2% to 5% mortgage is going to be horrible. Like, that's an easy argument to make, and it appeals to people. When you kind of scratch all the surface, it's, it's, I think it's much more nuanced than that. I, I, I want to disagree a little bit. Um, wages in this country, wages in North America are growing 4 to 5%. If my mortgage resets and my payment rises by more than 5%, then there needs to be an offset somewhere. I'm, I'm spending less on other stuff, be, uh, you know, because I just don't have the resources unless I'm going to, unless I'm going to draw down my savings. Um, so I, I just think that there will be downward pressure on households' ability to consume and to continue to generate GDP growth if their wages aren't keeping up with the reset on their mortgages. So from the, from the Bank of Canada's perspective, there's nothing systemic in the financial system because people are going to continue to pay their mortgages. But if we take a step back and look at actual consumption within Canada and GDP growth, that has to take a hit if I'm spending more for my shelter costs. I think when we talk about this potential cliff as well, part of the question is how involved politicians become in mortgage renewals. We've seen the federal liberals say they want to make mortgage, the process of renewing mortgages more competitive between banks and lenders, which is probably a good thing. But on the other hand, they've also made it pretty clear they expect banks to work with customers um, if they're having issues with their mortgage renewals. And on one hand, for individuals, that's a great thing. But does that create more systemic risk? And does it also prop up an overinflated housing market um, that's really not in line with free market principles? Uh, and also when we're talking about how people are experiencing the economy and the difference between some of the economic data and the sentiment out of there, Politically, a lot of economics is about vibes, and right now people are experiencing the economy very differently depending on, I'd say, your age, uh, what sector you work in, your financial circumstances. So, for example, young people who still can't afford homeownership, who are still seeing rents rise by record rates every single year, who are more likely to be freelancers or have more precarious work. The economy is not looking good for them still. Anyone who's bought a house in the last five years is going to feel a lot more vulnerable to interest rate changes because of the price they paid for that home. Um, Blue-collar workers who are also experiencing more of their paycheck being eaten up by inflation. So more than ever, I think people are experiencing the economy differently based on their personal circumstances. And that's part of the disconnect we're seeing. And I think that will become even more important politically over the next couple of years. When we look at housing, excuse me, when we get it, look at housing a little more broadly now, uh, we've been talking about affordability for, for several years now. Amanda, do you think the affordability picture will get better or worse in 2024? I think, um, and Dennis may recall, we had an interesting exchange about this last year. I mean, I, I think on the one hand, efforts are being made to increase supply of housing in Canada. So um, de facto, we're trying to solve part of the problem. 
we are increasing the population of Canada at a faster rate than um, we may be able to build homes. So de facto, we are um, making the problem worse. The point that I made last year that I would make again, um, although uh, it doesn't seem to get any kind of traction economically or politically, is I believe the problem with our housing market is we have financialized it. Um, and so we, unless we deal with the root cause of what, of what put us in this position, the likelihood of solving it becomes, becomes more remote. What do you mean by financialized? We've created a system where um, pr profit is to be made, not just on your home, but we have created a mentality where your home is not just a store of value, which for generations in this country and others, your home was a place that you lived and it held its value. It rose with the, the price of inflation over time. And you could sell it at some point and it would be a savings to you because it had kept pace with inflation, which is actually a lot of money over time to a time when now we believe these, what used to be anomalies of these massive profit periods is the norm and people buy houses with an intention to profit off of them. And that's part of a financial story where we now want people to profit off the mortgage and we want people to profit off uh, pieces of uh, the building process and we want, so developers now have double digit profit margins. And the, well, all I would say, and the solution to this by the way is politically unsellable and it's painful, um, which is why people don't talk about it. But unless we roll back some of our expectations for what the housing and real estate and development markets will do for us, we will be in this situation where scarcity of supply is valued. If you are in the real estate industry or you are a homeowner, you want scarcity of supply. It's how markets work. And we intervene in markets when they stop working for us. Um, so that's the, I would just put that aside because we're not going to talk about that and we're not going to do anything about that. We got to build more houses, I guess, is the answer. And we're- 100%. <laughs> we're building them and I guess eventually we'll, enough people will die that the supply and demand situation will level out. <coughs> Wow. Sabrina. That's the plan. That's the plan. It's eventually, boomers are going to die. It's a little bit grim to start uh, the year, it's, but it's true. that works. Sabrina, do you have any thoughts about, is government the answer or is government the problem? I think government intervention is often the problem. And when we're looking at affordability, I mean, the government does need to make changes. Um, mostly they need to get out of the way, and that's part of the issue with supply. All levels of government, municipal, provincial, federal, have a role to play in that, where zoning is so restrictive across the country at this point, where a lot of housing is basically illegal to build. Um, and even if we're upzoning, municipalities are still having things like shadow bans or whether it's setback rules. There are just so many tools right now that are used to block housing and that's contributing to the supply crisis. Uh, what we really need to do is make the approval process less subjective and subject to individual whims or whoever can show up at 2 p.m. on a Tuesday for a municipal town council meeting. Um, that's the first thing. The other thing is we can't only be talking about supply. We also have to talk about demand, and Amanda alluded to it a bit. Um, what's happening right now with immigration in Canada is completely unsustainable, uh, particularly when it comes to uncapped international student visas um, who are being brought in by not even real colleges or universities, essentially diploma mills that are taking advantage of these students, and they end up coming and being exploited as well. Some of these places don't even have proper classrooms, yet we've allowed this to become a cottage industry. And also temporary foreign workers, where that's another uncapped area where we're basically 
inducing housing demand so that low-wage employers can continue to play, pay very low wages, and those are two areas we definitely have to address, as well as the financialization of the market. And when it comes to people who live in primary residences, I think we need to protect value in those homes, but the issue of the amateur landlord who is now buying up three, four, five places, when you look at the portion of new mortgages, Every year, the portion of people who are buying multiple residences goes up, and as long as that continues, it's gonna be very, very hard for any new homeowner or young person to compete with someone who already has equity in the market. So, can I, can I say one thing? Sure. <clears throat> so I, I was gonna, I was gonna leave, one? I was gonna leave <laughs> this alone, but um, <laughs> Starlight Capital is the subsidiary of Starlight Investments, largest residential landlord in Canada. And so I can say unequivocally that we would build, we're, bu we're building 21,000 um, apartment units right now. That's our development pipeline. We would build three, four, five times that if we could. Um, so if I you don't want your competitors to build three, four, five times that. No, we'd be happy if they built. We would be happy if they built. So the market is so out of balance right now that there isn't a number of homes that our competitors could build that would encroach upon what we are going to build. So normally I would agree with you, but right now the market is so out of balance that we're happy to build three, four, five times what we're currently building, right? Because the shortfall in homes is somewhere between two and three million households and is growing by several hundred thousand every year. So <clears throat> we would be happy to build more homes. Um, but to Sabrina's point, there are just so many issues and hurdles um, to get those zoning, to get the permitting and such. And, I've heard lots of, you know, there's a lot of innovation taking place in the housing market. You know, down payment support models, co-ownership models, you know, innovative new housing structures. But at the end of the day, housing is a commodity like anything else, okay? So we don't have affordable oil, we don't have affordable copper, we don't have affordable electricity. This notion of affordable housing is quaint, but at the end of the day, you just need more homes. And then they won't appreciate by as much, Sorry. and more people will be able I to afford them. I do have to them. challenge you a little bit. Housing is not a commodity like anything else. Housing is a basic human right. The right to an affordable home, and I'm not talking about a single family home in the neighborhood of your choice with a white picket fence. A roof over your head is a basic human right, and if we commoditize other basic human rights the way we would commoditize housing, it would be a political issue. For some reason, we treat this like oil to our peril. Yeah, I, I think when I say that it's a commodity like anything else, I'm basically saying that the pricing is set by supply and demand. Right, but when it's a basic human right, there's a, there's a disconnect there where humans and policy have to intervene to say, if we treat it like a market, the market has treated housing perfectly well. The market has not failed housing. The market has worked for housing, but we have not designed the market that works for us. Yeah, not gonna argue with you on that point. The point that I will come back to though is this. If you want to solve the housing issue in Canada, we do. take a step back, G7 countries, okay? If, if you think the problem in Canada is bad, uh, nobody walks here, right, except for Americans, right? If you're, if you're, a G, if you're any other G7 country, um, you've got a ton of people walking to your borders away from wars right now, a war, a, away from failed states, okay? So if you think the housing shortage and challenges in Canada are bad, you, you should look at some of the problems in some of the other G7 nations. So it is not solely a Canada issue. And at the end of the day, the challenge is, is that we have goosed demand dramatically, whether through you know, the provisions in the RSP program, the first home savings account, um, immigration policy, 
and we've done almost nothing to boost supply. In fact, we've put roadblocks in the way of supply. That is, you know, and throw in, throw in the financial crisis, which saw a massive decline in residential investment, and you've got a situation where we are short millions of households, and that shortfall is growing every year, okay? And the reason I say that there's no such thing as affordable housing is because the moment that property changes hands, it's no longer in the affordable basket, right? It reverts to market. So the solution is more supply, right? I, I, I don't think that politically it's palatable to limit demand, right? So the solution is more supply. And you have an entire industry that would be thrilled to provide more of it, right? To a certain point, right? Vacancy gets to 8%, nobody wants to build anything, right? But at less than 3% nationally, less than 2% in the big six markets, yeah, guys want to build. People want to build, sorry. Can I just sorry. maybe add one last thing on this before? Very quickly. We all tear each other apart. Um, <laughs> listen, I think, I think, I think, I think what, what you're effectively hearing here is um, there is very little reason to be optimistic that affordability is going to improve going forward. That's just the reality. There's a supply-demand issue, whatever. It may be financialized or not, but the reality is we're not building enough given the amount of people that we've got here. And that was true five years ago. It's even more true now. So we're on a kind of a one-way street of uh, deteriorating affordability, even if rates go down. I think that's really important. Now, what's, what's encouraging in some sense, going to your point, Sabrina, is you know, a lot of the challenge on the supply side that we've had historically, yeah, you can blame government for that, but at the end of the day, governments were doing what people wanted them to do, right? They didn't want homes in your neighborhood, they didn't want a new highway, they didn't want to do this, they didn't want to do that. And that culminated in, you know, zoning regulations super restrictive or inability to build there or that type of house here. Uh, and what's encouraging is, I think, this kind of this understanding that supply really is a blockage on affordability, I think is permeating through various kind of groups of stakeholders. So you're seeing a lot more emphasis on that. Now, realistically, supply is not going to increase that that much. I mean, we've got a, like a shortage of construction workers. That's going to get amplified over time. There's a capital issue. There's a cost of building issue. Um, but at least, I think, at least we're talking about the issue in the right dimension, which is there's, a, I think, now a pretty widely held consensus that, yeah, we, like, we, we just need a lot more places. I, so I'm going to say, I'm gonna say no, one no, more thing. Can, I know can we hold it over to the discussion for Outlook 2025? Because I think we're still going to be talking about Affordability just, just one brief point, sure. and then I swear to God, I'll put this, get <laughs> off my soapbox. But on the political front, uh, the grocers have been very much in the crosshairs of politicians, uh, that their profitability has been excessive, whatever that is, uh, and that they've somehow been um, abusing us and using inflation as a cover. Nowhere in that conversation have you heard developers discussed. Um, and when you look at the, now these are blanket statements and there are developers obviously that make individual decisions and uh, project by project decisions, but as a group in aggregate, their profit margins are in the double digits, 12, 13%, uh, very reasonable. Not the 2% that we're, we're yelling at Loblaws for. Uh, and so I would just say if, if politically there was actually really an interest in this, you wouldn't give those same group of people a tax break, which is what we've just done you would uh, maybe ask them why they can't build, cheap, build more affordable units, price things in a way that is, yes, eats into their profit. OK, I'm done. <laughs> OK, speaking of politics, why don't we get to a few political questions here? Uh, I might just ask for a show of hands on these. We're not slated to have a federal election until October 2025. Who thinks there'll be an early election this year? Raise your hand. 
I'll take that as silence. <laughs> uh, will Justin Trudeau still be prime minister at the end of this year? The end of this year? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Uh, does anyone, <laughs> who, who will be the, will Pierre Poilievre be the next prime minister? Yes. Probably. Yeah, okay. yeah probably. Um, all right. You got to ask harder questions. Yeah. That, <laughs> those were way too easy. I thought I, thought I might get a little bit of a, an early election bite, but nothing. Um, I'll go back. Actually, one quick thing. We were talking about uh, the economy and how it seems to be doing a little bit better or showing resilience. Does that mean we're not going to get the rate cuts that everybody seems to be talking about right now? Jeff, why don't you start with that? <laughs> um, well, listen. So I mean, we're of the view that rates do get cut in the second part of this year. Um, but four, so 100 basis points of cuts. Now, the challenge to that is you've got an economy that's slowing. So there's clear, like that's, that's clear. As I said, we're, like, we're kind of stalled. We know consumer spending is coming down. It may not collapse, but it's coming down. So there's pain being felt. No question about it. The problem is inflation hasn't come down nearly as much as we would have liked, um, in part because growth is stronger. But you, know, you look at core measures of inflation, Canada, in the 3.5% range. And that's, and they're kind of stuck there. So there's risk on the inflation side because it's kind of stalled. That's compounded by the fact that labor markets are generating these really strong wage gains, right? In Canada, like wages are rising about 6%, completely way outside of productivity. Of course, productivity is declining. So you're actually getting substantial increase in your labor costs, which, you know, if you think of it kind of from a risk management perspective around inflation, the risk seem tilted to the upside in Canada. Um, and, and that puts in peril, you know, A, the amount of rate cuts that there might be and, and when those might actually start. It's not inconceivable at all that, you know, uh, if wage growth remains strong and inflation doesn't come down, that the governor might actually have to raise a little bit more between now and the summer. And he's been very clear about the fact that he might need to do this. Now, of course, we hope it doesn't happen, but that's, you know, that's the nature of the inflation challenge that we're facing. It's, it's like it's stubborn as hell. It's worth throwing in that some of the factors, the risk factors for inflation um, that, that had been abating are kind of percolating, right? Yep. There's the geopolitical risk that Sabrina was talking about. Um, and if we think about the Middle East, um, obviously the price of oil is a wild card. The Suez Canal is a mess. Um, and so is the Panama Canal, actually. I was looking at the Baltic Dry Index and that led me to, I didn't realize that it was that bad a drought in the Panama Canal, but um, we are sh seeing shipping rates rising again. And so when you talk to, um, for instance, the grocers, uh, they, they, the food producers will tell you that they're still seeing massive price pressure. So we're not going to see an abatement that we were hoping to see from, again, forces beyond our control. I think that's key when you look at what's still driving inflation in Canada. It's food costs, which, because of supply chain issues, aren't going anywhere right now. And shelter costs as well. The other risk is if there is a rate cut, does that then spur the housing market to start going again? And then we get back into another inflation spiral. Uh, I've got a quick question from the audience too here that I'll throw out there. Um, any thoughts on the fact that we now have high employment, high employment and anemic growth at the same time? And what does that mean going forward? Sorry, can you repeat high unemployment? High so we have high employment, so full, like employment's good, but growth is also is sluggish. Is that going to be the new normal? Well, I mean, that's why we got bad word productivity. Um, you know, I mean, the reality is in Canada, the way 
the way we've set up the immigration system over the last few years is we have encouraged firms to hire people over investing. And the Americans are in the opposite. Americans have made it difficult for people to hire, firms to bring foreign labor in, but they've provided unbelievable incentives for firms to invest, like crazy incentives for firms to invest, which we're trying to match here, which is really hard. So as a result of that, you, you, know, you end up with this situation kind of a year or two down the line where, lo and behold, we've hired a whole bunch of people, but we haven't invested a lot, and we're kind of surprised by that, whereas we really shouldn't be surprised because we basically, that's kind of the, the, the incentive that we provided firms in Canada. So yeah, you know, strong employment growth, I and mean, we think it's going to slow, but sluggish growth, and that's, that's what we expect in the next couple of quarters. I think the key is you have to ask what type of jobs as well. Are they low-wage jobs? Are they precarious jobs? Are they jobs with room for advancement, like you said? Are employees being invested in? Is innovation being invested in? And so I think the high employment numbers mask many issues in those areas. I also think Jeff brings up an important point. Um, it may not be the point you were trying to bring up, but for me, uh, which is we often talk about success from political leaders that are an economy based on jobs. And I, I wish we would talk more about uh, growth as the goal of political leadership, uh, as the central agenda. It's what governments should be focused on for all of us. Uh, jobs may or may not follow. Uh, to JF's point, they don't always follow aggregate growth, but it is always better for all of us if we have growth and we kind of let our politicians off the hook on that being their central aim. Thanks, Amanda. Uh, I just want to change gears quickly to the geopolitical sphere because there's some real big questions out there uh, and I want to get give you some time to discuss those. We started 2023 with one big uh, war uh, to deal with, and we, we've ended it with two, and it seems like a lot more uncertainty. I'll start with Sabrina. How do you see the, the Gaza conflict playing out in 2024? Uh, yeah, I'll say it. How do you see it playing out? I don't see it going anywhere anytime soon. Certainly, at least in the first half of the year, Israel's made it very clear that they plan to defend themselves and that they feel the need to eradicate Hamas, so that will continue to play out. Um, there will also be more and more questions about what the um, Iranian regime, the role they play in funding terrorism around the world and the impact that's having throughout the Middle East um, and also um, other authoritarian governments, whether it's Russia, whether, again, the Iranian regime, whether it's um, China even, they're collaborating more and more together and they're building alliances and the West really doesn't seem prepared to combat that. Um, not only when it comes to actual like physical threats and attacks, but whether it's threats to democracy, foreign interference, whether it's the spread of misinformation and disinformation online, there's a lot going on that, again, we haven't been prepared for and we're going to have to not just prepare ourselves in terms of armed forces and national security threats physically, but in, in the cyber and digital world as well, where we are very, very vulnerable to hacking attacks, ransomware, again, disinformation, political interference, especially as we go into an election, whether it happens in 2024 or 2025. Any other thoughts on Gaza and the conflict with Israel? No? Amanda, what about the war in Ukraine? Well, let me lump those together under the general heading of I'm not qualified to talk about these things. <laughs> um, but they, to me, they, to where I do feel like I have an observation as a Canadian is these are two um, major conflicts 
that Canada, what it highlights and throws into stark relief is uh, that we've lost a little bit of our credibility in the world. Uh, you, could, you could say it's defense spending. Um, it's not just defense spending. Uh, there, are, there are other aspects of, uh, of our role and our leadership uh, that have become weakened. Um, we could, I think we could play some, some of the blame um, on the period of time when Donald Trump was president and the deterioration of our relationship, whatever it is, it throws into relief that we need to actually find a way to be present, and it probably is spending more um, on our, making our NATO commitment, uh, even if just that, so that we remain a fully-fledged member, because uh, it does matter that we show up to these things in the various ways the world expects us to. Jeff? Um, so just a slightly different kind of economic take on this. So um, obviously, wars uh, have a human toll that is unbearable and, and objectionable in so many different ways. Um, but one of the reasons we feel, one of the ways in which we feel conflicts is how it impacts our economies. And you know, that might be a super narrow way of thinking about it, but you know, in kind of the market world, in my world, that's, that's a really important thing. So you know, we look to the Gaza conflict, we look to the Ukraine war initially, as you know, what does this mean for kind of well-being from an economic perspective for Canada or other parts of the world? And uh, for a few months there, first couple of months, it looked like the the you know the Gaza conflict was or the Hamas conflict, I should say, was you know contained and it wasn't going to lead to interruptions in shipping, for instance, or interruptions in oil supply. And that's starting to feel a little bit of a, of a bit of a stretch of an assumption. But bigger picture, if you if you if you look to then well, what are geopolitical events that can impact us economically? Then, um, you know, then you've got to think about the U.S. election, because that, you know, effectively is a big geopolitical shock, right? So, if Trump were to win, and he and he and he upends international commerce the way he says that he's going to, like that is a much more meaningful uh, disruptor of the global economy, and you know, whatever happens in the Gulf or whatever happens in Russia. Um, so, you know, it's not. We don't technically think of it in terms of geopolitical terms, but like the, the the economic concern behind all those things is amplified, and I think you can make the argument that it's a geopolitical risk. So you you raised uh, the question of Donald Trump and the U.S. election in November, which is kind of hanging over this year. Dennis, do you think Trump can win, and are we ready for what will happen if he does? Uh, yes and no. <laughs> so. <laughs> Uh, the Atlantic published, I think it was a series of 24 essays talking about if Trump wins, what will happen to democracy, to minority rights, to the Department of Justice, and on and on and on and on. And uh, so, sorry, we'll take a step back. Can he win? Yes. The United States has got this weird, arcane electoral college system, which means you don't have, you know, the person who gets the most votes doesn't necessarily win. Um, and, you know, we were talking about this in, I guess it's the green room. Uh, about the fact that people get their information from very different places and there is an enormous amount of misinformation that is taking place across the globe, but of course around every U.S. Uh, presidential election. So can he win? Absolutely. Um, what happens if he does win? Chaos. Um, you know, like his first term was a dress rehearsal, right? They had adults in the room that were successful in constraining his more crazy and devious you know, plans and objectives. This time around, there were, those people would not exist. You know, he has a very sophisticated organization around him now. And it's not because Trump is like this playing three-dimensional chess and he's smarter than all of us. It's because people who are, people who crave power and people with weaker morals 
gravitate to a person like this, who can get them in places they have no, they have no business you know, being in, um, like the White House or like in Cabinet. And so this time around, uh, he has got a more sophisticated organization. He will, he, will, he will have an attorney general who certainly isn't going to recuse themselves of anything, right? And he will be almost completely unfettered to do whatever he wants. And so, yeah, uh, he could win, and it would be absolute chaos if he did. Amanda, do you have any thoughts on Trump? Um, I, I mean, I, I, dis, I don't disagree with a single thing Dennis has said. Um, I, it's, it feels a little bit like a tsunami you're, being, you're trying to prepare for that is two years away. Uh, I, if and when Donald Trump becomes president of the United States, there will be massive impact on all of us politically, economically. Um, our governments will have to respond. It's just impossible to know in advance uh, what that is. And this thing that I'm describing, of course, is that sick feeling we all have in the pit of our stomachs that we now have to live with. Um, so uh, I don't know what to say, except I was really rooting for different results in court cases faster, um, and I still am. I mean, maybe it's, it's, it's like we're, Amanda, you and I have been on this for a few years now through Trump, actually. If I remember mm -hmm. correctly, and like every, and I'm sure many of you have been here for all those lunches as well. Like you'll recall in the Trump years, like we we'd spend a lot of time on the panel talking about Trump, and then there was an element of well, like maybe next year we won't be talking about Trump as much, and then you start the next year, and well, actually we talked about Trump more this year than yeah. we did last year, and so like it's just it's just like a, a giant black hole of uncertainty, and you know, hopefully that's not the world that we're in in a year from now, but it's 50-50 looks like or maybe not even 50-50. Sabrina, do you have thoughts on Trump? I agree that he absolutely could win again. And in addition to potential economic or um, political ramifications, I think another big one is cultural ramifications. When we look at increasing divisiveness, um, people living you know, in different factual realities, um, whether it's just the rise of a lot of anxiety and frustration and hate throughout throughout North America. Um, I think there's a potential for that to bleed even more across the border, and we tend to be about five years behind the states culturally. Um, I think even the 2024 election itself, whether he were to win or not, could be very divisive for us as well. Many Canadians consume a lot of U.S. media, and rightly or wrongly in interpret what's happening in the U.S. and apply it to Canada. Uh, so that will also likely raise emotions and conflict across the country. In fact, I think the biggest risk, if there is to be an election in 2024, would be during the U.S. election because we've already seen the liberals with attack ads trying to paint conservatives as being the mirror image of Trump in Canada. So if they're feeling weak and at risk, they might seek to do that during a 2024 election where, again, a lot of Canadians will be conflating U.S. Republican republicanism with Canadian conservatism. I've got a question from the audience here that I'm going to broaden out a little bit, uh, just sticking with the international question. Uh, the question is, other than the U.S. election, which election result most worries you in 2024? Let's broaden that out to what international um, development or potential development worries you most in 2024? Well, it's kind of an unfair question. You said, you lump Trump in there? Like, he just clouds everything out. I want to take him out. So aside from, aside from Trump. I, th I think the, sorry, did you want to take? No, no, go ahead. 
I think we have serious issues in, in Congress in the United States, right? So, I mean, whether Trump wins or not, um, if Ukraine is allowed to fall, um, that encourages China. So you've got concerns around Taiwan. I think I got a headline the other day saying that uh, China invading Taiwan would hit the global economy up for $10 trillion. That's real money. Um, so I, I think you have real issues with Congress in the United States. Um, I don't know if anybody saw today, but Hunter Biden showed up for his, uh, <laughs> for his contempt hearing and kind of threw everything into chaos. It's good TV, you should watch. Um, and then I think the knock-on effect of um, the U.S. retreating is, of course, stop me if you've heard this before, it creates a vacuum and nature abhors a vacuum. Who moves into that, right? And we have, um, I think the G7 and the, what is it called, the liberal order that has existed, the democratic liberal order that it's existed since World War II, we've ostracized certain countries, right? Iran, China, Russia, and so on and so forth. And so as they get increasing, well, not China so much, but as they get locked out of the global economy, who can, who can they do business with each other, right? And so after a while, they create their own little block, right? And they seek to influence in other economies and other countries. And so my concern is not so much with an election. My concern is more as the U.S. retreats and becomes more insular, um, is Europe in a position to kind of step up, right? Um, Germany, the U.K., France, are they in a position? Do they have effective leadership that they can step up and sort of fill that void? And I, and I would argue right now the answer is no, right? I don't know that the collective appetite is there. You know, we're, we're so focused on North American elections. I mean, what's her name? Georgia Maliti or whatever, who was elected prime minister of Italy. Um, she's a Putin sympathizer, right, out of her own mouth. So I'm concerned about sort of the rise of uh, authoritarianism around the world. I'm worried about the retreat of the United States. And I'm worried about sort of Congress hamstringing the United States' ability to sort of be that check globally and what that means for us going forward. Any other global... Uh, blind spots we should be have we should have on the radar. It's not a different one. I just would resoundingly endorse the view that uh, if we take our eye off Russia and we we relax our commitment to Ukraine, uh, we the the globe uh, are in peril. That that's a that unleashes a set of forces, um, including in nearby countries, that uh, is very unpleasant and go and well beyond our moral commitment to Ukraine. Um, I do think that's, that is one place that we, Canada plays a small role. Um, I hope the U.S. does not relax its support. So we look at a lot of, uh, we're getting towards the end here, we, we look at a lot of risks out there uh, and problem spots. What's something we can be optimistic about going into 2024? I'll start with Sabrina. I think generational change when we're talking about elections around the world. Um, there's a new generation of millennials, but also Gen Z who are looking to enter politics and will hopefully be engaged and involved as they feel a lot of the political and economic issues we're talking about even more intensely than older generations. And of course, they have long futures hopefully ahead of them. Uh, so I think that generational change presents a really big opportunity. I hope we see more young people get involved in politics. Um, as well, I think as negative as some of what's happened over the last year has been, it's woken a lot of people up and shaken a lot of people out of their complacency. So on one hand, while that can be frightening and anxiety inducing and there's a lot of risk there, it also presents a lot of opportunity 
for change and having some of the tough conversations that we've been avoiding and other countries too have been avoiding over the last decade or more. Uh, so I do think there are bright spots amongst much of the fog. JF? Um, yeah, a couple of things. I mean, I, I, I think it's reasonable to expect that rates are gonna be lower this time next year. And then that will, you know, you know, you're taking a little bit of a boot off the neck, and that, and that is going to help in a number of different ways. So make people feel better about the state of the world and have, allow people to have a little bit more income to spend. That's kind of a short-term thing. The other, the other, I think, longer-term thing, if it sticks, is um, kind of marrying with this productivity challenge that we've got and the lack of investment that we've got is, I think, the, the green transition and what we're... I'm not endorsing what we're... like, how it's occurring, um, but the investments that are required and the transformation that will come as a result of that have the potential, I think, to be a game changer in how our economy operates to some extent. And, and you know, I'm more optimistic about that than I am pessimistic about it. So I think that's something to look forward to, even though I realize that's not a very popular view. There's a question from the audience about whether we think the uh, money being spent, or the money spent on the EV, the green transition, is being well spent. Would you say that it's being well spent? <laughs> Well, you know, I mean, some of it, some of it we don't really have a choice, right? Like, like, you know, we're following the Americans in a lot of ways, right? So, you know, if you got Honda coming to Canada saying, listen, I can go here, I can go to the U.S., and the Americans are going to give me this, and I'm only going to come to Canada if you give me that, you know, do you have, like, if you want the investment, you don't have a choice. Uh, so we're kind of stuck in, in some of the dimensions on that. Now, of course, it doesn't make sense to give companies billions and billions and billions of dollars to set up shop here or in the U.S., like, they, you know, Economic projects should be standing up on their own merit, but that's we're we're, we're hostage to policies that are set over, overseas across the border on that. So no, of course not. Of course it's not optimal investment. There's no question about it. But what I would say on that, which ties in with what gives me reason for optimism, uh, is that this is a great country. We're a great country, and we uh, can't rest on our laurels. But we can do a lot of things. We have the ability to make change and invest and spur business investment. And on the list of things that make us great, I will throw in immigration. Uh, and we are challenging that concept at the moment. Um, and maybe there's a genius in the way we're challenging it, which is going to force us to actually think in a way uh, collectively we never really have about how we integrate um, and how we smooth a path. Uh, for new Canadians, because we have just done it so well for so many generations, we've never really kind of thought it through. We might have to start thinking it through a little bit better in the years ahead, but we do it, and we do it well, and it's to our great strength. Uh, and we have a ton of just natural advantages that we sometimes squander. Uh, so the glass half full story on all of that is we don't need to squander it. We don't need to be um, you know, just good enough. Uh, this is our time, and we have every every ability at our disposal. Yep. Uh, two things. Best on best hockey at the Olympics, right? <laughs> um, looking forward to that. Um, and I guess the other part of that would be the PWHL. Um, finally, you know, consolidated, effective professional women's hockey. So I think that's one thing that all Canadians can be very, very proud of and optimistic about. And then I'll echo what you said, Amanda, Canada. Um, you know, we have a stable electoral system, right, where our ridings are not gerrymandered, right? They're set by a nonpartisan organization, so uh, candidates can't pick their voters. Voters pick their candidates and, their winner, and the winners, right? We have a democratic system where everybody in, in, in cabinet is actually elected into office. 
Um, you can argue about the fact that someone can win without having a majority of the votes, a plurality instead of 50 plus one. Um, but I would argue that our democracy is more stable than the one south of the border, right? Um, and I, you know, as, as a father of four, I look at the next generation and I'm just, I'm filled with optimism and, and hope. You know, so to your point, I think, you know, if, if you look at, you know, measures of happiness, if you look at measures of freedom, if you look at measures of uh, equality, Canada scores so high. Are we perfect? No. But the rest of the world recognizes that this is one of the greatest nations on the planet, and this is one of the best places to live in the entire world. So I think all of us, you know, it's fitting that we're at the Canada Club, but I, I think all of us should be optimistic about the fact that we get to be Canadians and we get to live in this great country. Excuse me. I'd say that's a pretty good note to end on. Uh, if we want, can we give another round of applause for our panelists for being here today? I almost feel like I just want to fade out now. That was really the, the right close. Um, but Joe, thank you for guiding the discussion so expertly. And uh, Sabrina, JF, Amanda, Dennis, um, another really lively and um, engaging discussion. So thank you so much for being so energetic and kicking off our new year in such a great way and a very thoughtful discussion. And uh, part two of Amanda's housing panel today. So <laughs> just like last year. So thank you very much. Um, on behalf of the club, thank you for taking the time and participating. We really do appreciate it. Um, so one more round of applause for the panelists. Before we close, I'd like to thank VVC, our AV partners, for their ongoing event support and our sponsors, Scotiabank and EY. Please visit our website for more information about upcoming events. Thank you for joining us. Um, all the best of the new year, and we hope to see you again soon. Have a good afternoon. Thank you.